Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you have come along. I'm excited about this particular show because it's a theme that has been brought up many times in the circles I run in, in the Wesleyan world, as in, in, I think when I say Wesleyan world, I'm talking about the denominations and the movements that are connected to the Wesleyan tradition, as we're going to be talking about a new book that's been published by Baker Academic called The Doctrine of Good Works. And we have one of the authors with us today, but just hold on a second because we're going to bring him in here in just a second. First, I want you to know this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we've just added a new course of study for people in the Global Methodist Church. Now, this is an emerging denomination with more than 3,000 churches that have become a part of this denomination. And as a result of that, they're looking for ways to find um, credentialing for their pastors. And so we've just added 250 course of study students in the last four months. And so we're excited about that program and the fact that we are an approved seminary for the Global Methodist Church for all of our degrees. So we would love for people in that tradition to consider us. But of course, we have a host of other programs, including our Wesley Institute, which is a lay initiative that meets once a week for nine months that goes through one track is uh, every book of the Bible. Another track is the theological subjects. And we would love for you to think about that, particularly this time of year. That will start just after Labor Day. So we'd love for you to check that out. And you can find out more about us at Wesley Biblical Seminary at wbs.edu. Also, this podcast is brought to you by WPO Development. Their CEO, Keith Waters, says that if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. And what he does is he comes alongside churches and schools and organizations to help them develop a plan, particularly as it relates to capital campaigns and planning for campaigns to help people actualize their goals. And I know people who listen to this podcast have started to use their services, and I just highly recommend them. They've done more than 250 successful capital campaigns across the country, and I, I, I worked with them on one campaign that was a successful one as well. So I recommend their services. You can find out more about them in my show notes. Also, we have a couple of things coming from andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. One is a, a is an opportunity to get a free resource by signing up for my email list. And if you sign up for my email list, I'll send you for free five steps to deeper teaching and preaching. It's an eight-page PDF document and a 45-minute teaching that's available. Also, you'll find on there, if you click on the tab that says Courses, You'll see that I have a course on the book of Jude. The guest, our guest today actually contributed a, some, a teaching on there as well, a kind of bonus content, and it's called Contender. It's a six-week course that's great for small group discussion, um, Sunday school classes. And then at the end of August, depending on when this podcast comes out, there'll be a new course that's available for small groups and Sunday school groups on heaven. It's five sessions on heaven. And even just one of those sessions is on hell, but you'll have to check out the whole thing to get it. So I'd love for you to find out more about that. And you can get all that at andymillerthe3rd.com. All right. I am delighted to welcome in my friend, Dr. Caleb Friedemann, who serves as the David A. Case Chair of Biblical Studies and is an Associate Re Research Professor of New Testament at Ohio Christian University and a graduate of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Caleb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, you have a lot of things that have come out, but recently uh, through Baker Academic, you have a new book out with your father, Matt Friedman, who many people who follow my podcast will know. He teaches at Western Biblical and Tom McCall, who's a systematic the theologian at Asbury Theological Seminary, The Doctrine of Good Works, Reclaiming a Neglected Protestant Teaching. Caleb, I'm so interested in what brought this book about. Can you tell me about how it came about and when you guys, you know, came up with this idea to bring this book to the to print? Yeah, you know, the, the timeline is a little fuzzy in my mind, but I remember a few years back, Tom had actually mentioned uh, we were all at ETS, uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting and some big city somewhere. I forget exactly which <laughs> city it was, but we were having lunch and he mentioned this idea about uh, basically having seen in a lot of places, having seen the doctrine of good works get weaponized. Yeah. It's basically become a, this negative thing that people would use to say, oh, like you're, you believe in good works or you believe in the importance of good works and that's a bad thing. And, and I think he had actually been doing some, some research in Protestant scholastics 
And yeah. one of the things that he found interesting was that Protestant scholastics often had a fairly strong doctrine of good works, even talking about good works being necessary in various kinds of ways, sometimes necessary for salvation. So I remember, I remember Tom mentioning it some years back, and I think he and dad were talking about doing something together on it. And then eventually they, they ended up wanting to go that direction and brought me into it as the, the biblical studies guy on the project. So yeah, that was sort of the, the origin of it. And we really wrote it pretty quickly. I, I remember I was actually, you know, drafting material for it not that long ago. And I think I, I wrote most of my stuff for it in about a, an eight or nine month period. So the volume to actually came together pretty quickly once we had the contract from Baker and started writing on it. Yeah, it's, it is exciting. So you handle like the biblical studies portion um, and your dad talks through like kind of like the, the practical theology approach and some of the other theological approaches. And then Tom handles the systematic and historical side of what's involved. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. And the, the ordering is actually a little interesting. We, we actually start off with, uh, after the introduction, of course, we start off with a chapter by Tom on basically Protestant theologians on the doctrine of good works, saying some things that would surprise a lot of us who call ourselves yeah. Protestants. So we, we start off with the kind of historical piece first, and then we go to the biblical material. Tom comes back and does a systematic theology chapter, and then we have a couple practical theology chapters on good works in the church from dad. That's great. Now, this is so interesting, and I know that some we might just have to like punt to read Tom's chapters, but if, if you could help us with this, because that sets the stage for why we need to have this. And you've mentioned it a few times already, the Protestant scholastic tradition. Some people might not know what we're talking about, and they might be surprised that these would be, often be people we classify as Reformed. And maybe the way we look at it now, we would think of people in the reform tradition as very opposed, like almost like very suspect of any times the word the word works is used. So could you tell us maybe a little bit about that? Just kind of like the um, like a big picture of what that tradition is? Yeah. One, one of the points that we make in the introduction is that Christianity has a crisis of credibility. Okay. That's the language that we use. In other words, a lot of people look at Christians and say, what I see you doing doesn't match up with what you say you believe. Right, right. And, and another point that, and Tom was actually the one that, that drafted the introduction. At one point that I thought that he made that was really brilliant is he, he said, sometimes that that incongruity between what we say we believe and what we actually do, sometimes that's because Christians misunderstand their faith. Okay. Other times, it's just because of blatant hypocrisy. We're not yeah. doing what we say we believe. But then he says, some, sometimes this crisis of credibility is because Christians are living out precisely the faith they've been taught. Wow. In other words, we have taught people that good works don't matter. Right. And then we're surprised when the world looks at us and says, wait a second, <laughs> right? This doesn't match up. And in order to address that, I think we have to actually dig into uh, what do Protestants believe? Because possibly uh, we actually are far apart, right? We, we've, we've put some distance between our original Protestant forebears and our own kind of livings out of yeah. Of Protestant theology today. So we then kind of cut to chapter chapter one. Uh, which Let me I, jump back there because there's something really good that you guys say like the, in how that expresses and you give a, some quick bullet points of yes. the way this is expressed like the bumper sticker sort of faith that says uh, Christians aren't perfect just forgiven which you know there's not a, there's a little bit of truth in that like you know like we are forgiven and we're thankful for that but nevertheless like it misses the point of the sanctified life and who God's called to be. Um, maybe the idea, if you say the sinner's prayer, your salvation is eternally guaranteed. All you have to do is kind of cross this line. So we've taught some of these things. Or here, Here's one more I thought was really helpful. Your good works don't get you saved and they cannot keep you saved either. Like, let's just make sure we get this all. And, and you guys are suggesting at the start in this introduction that that 
type of theology has led, this is what we've taught people, and it might have led to this crisis um, that you've described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think we actually do see a, a lot of places where that is true in the Protestant tradition. Another point that we make in the introduction is that it's not just at the popular level that this issue occurs, right? This issue of perhaps misunderstanding right. what the gospel is. And in fact, you can you can see it in various ways. Uh, some sometimes it's explicit statements made by theologians to say that good works really don't matter for salvation, right? Other times it's just a matter of neglect. So the the doctrine of good works it, in some some sectors of Protestant theology actually is a whole systematic theological locus. Mm. Like that, you know, it, a lot of time we talk to talk about different areas of theology, right? And when you're doing systematic theology, doctrine of God, for example, or doctrine of scripture, think, things like that, pneumatologies, Christology. Yeah, yeah. But the doctrine of good works historically has sometimes been one of those loci that needed to be discussed. And in many more recent Protestant systematic theologies, it doesn't receive that same amount of attention. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah, we I think we really need to come to understand our Protestant heritage better and also understand what Scripture says about these things if we're really going to remedy this crisis of credibility. You know, some might already be thinking as they hear this, well, and, and this, this is kind of the popular type of line that people might think. They might think of this in a, well, they might not say the word Pelagian, but they might think of it in a Pelagian type of way as if we are saving ourselves and that we earn our salvation by doing good works that we don't emphasize Christ's work. And so we think we um, just have to say a prayer every time that we sin to keep ourselves saved eternally. Uh, in my tradition, um, the way that this has been hard um, hard on some folks is through the, um, uh, in, in my tradition, I say where I was, I was raised in the Salvation Army, and there's one article of faith that um, says we believe that continuance in a state of salvation depends upon continued obedient faith in Christ. And I've always looked at that in a relational way, that there is this ongoing relationship that we have, and it's not our obedience in itself, um, but our obedience coupled with Christ's work that enables us to experience the benefits of salvation. Um, I'm just curious, like just even that surface level kind of saving yourself idea, could you address that before we get into some of the deeper topics? Yeah, actually, I think some of this will be helped by some of some of the theological chapters and biblical chapters. And there's a particular distinction that I'll talk about when we get to the New Testament chapter in the book. Okay, I think it's really helpful here. But, you know, I think the first thing to just say is that 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 issue that you're articulating, right, that somehow we would be able to earn our salvation or merit our salvation ourselves. I mean, that issue is exactly what's at the root of Protestantism, right? Yeah. I mean, Protestantism comes to be as a right. movement within the Catholic Church, uh, basically pushing back, among other things, against that idea that we can earn ourselves. Yeah. Right. And and what's fascinating, though, is that very, very close to that Protestant origin point, you find right. Protestant theologians, right, from the Lutheran and Reformed traditions, affirming at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> that good works are necessary in various ways, right? And there are some very fine distinctions that uh, Tom makes in, in that historical chapter about how they articulate that. And, and it's not like it's a total monolith either. There are variations right. within the tradition. But the point is that very close to that Protestant origin point and without, without forsaking that idea that salvation is by faith alone, right? you find people articulating at the same time that good works are necessary. You might say not optional. Yeah. Wow. This is, it, I, I love the uh, historical chapter as, as somebody who works in history myself. I, I was, I was blown away by some of it, honestly. And I think I've drunk in the Kool-Aid. So uh, sadly that, oh, well this, this maybe it's Arminius that comes along and then leads to John Wesley. And I, I thought maybe I would see more Arminius and Wesley in that chapter. But what I was 
I was beautifully surprised by was honestly people that I just haven't studied that much, seeing this scholastic uh, Lutheran reform tradition all together, all these things coming together to hear exactly what you just said. I think it's so important for people to grasp the title of this book really helps clue us in that this is something that's neglected in the pro Protestant tradition as a whole. So I love that, that, that part of the contribution. Anything else you want to say about that that those that historical chapter? Well, I, I think just to give people kind of a sense of what happens in that chapter, we basically start off and look at the Lutheran tradition, and then we yep. look at the Reformed tradition, and talk about some key figures in both of those areas of Protestant theology and how they treat good works as necessary in various ways, right? And and as I said, it's not like there is just a party line that everybody's parroting. There are yes. variations between different different theologians, but the thing that does come through clearly is that they are all saying that good works are necessary in some sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the title of that chapter. Uh, I think it's it's truly good and actually necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because a, a lot of Protestants, if you ask, if you ask a lot of Protestants, I think what what good works have to do with salvation? I think the, the standard answer that you would get is that good works have nothing to do with salvation. And, and sure. it's, it's like, yes, we should probably do them, but they're they're kind of an optional add-on. Right? Yeah. This this is this is if, if you want to kind of put something else in your bag, you can do that, but they're not really part of the core. They're not a they're not a salvation issue. And I think what we're starting to see here, when we actually go back to some of our roots, yeah. we find that wow, like they are extremely important. And and your reaction, Andy, is is exactly what my reaction was. And I think, honestly, I think it's what Tom was was sensing as he was reading these sources just for primary research purposes, right? He's he's reading through and saying, "Wow, like this is this is pretty crazy what I'm finding here because it doesn't square with the way that we usually talk about this." Yeah, uh, and, and there's some great metaphors that are, are in uh, in these traditions that he describes in that chapter for like like images of people being on their deathbed but needing to respond even though like there's a necessary response for people to be able to accept the work that's coming like there's a sense that that in itself is a work it is it, it's moving in the direction and then of course even after there what, what's the role that he he paints or what's how does he describe what happens after somebody's in a relationship with jesus for for works well, maybe we should go there after, after okay. chapters because it's really it's really after that that Tom Tom has a systematic chapter that kind of puts all the pieces together. And I, I can okay. actually, when we get there, I can quote a few a few parts from that if you'd like. Okay, yeah. let's hit the biblical side. Like these, you have an Old Testament chapter and a New Testament chapter. So I think this is really helpful to get things started. Like initially, just starting from Genesis one through three, that we're created for good works and corrupted by sin yeah so one of the things that of course is central to biblical theology is this idea of kind of putting all the pieces together and show how they showing how they really fit together right so that that's what i was really trying to do is i was thinking about okay how, do, how in the world do i synthesize all of this across two chapters right the whole bible what are, how are we going to put together the picture of of good works and I really did want to start in Genesis 1 to 3, because that's that, I think, is the foundation. And I think one of the things that we forget a lot of the time is that work is part of God's good and original intent. For mm, mm -hmm. Yes. And, and the other thing that we forget and that I try to emphasize in that section, we're getting started into the Old Testament, is that God himself is a worker. Hmm. Like what we find yeah. across across Genesis one is that God is in in creating is engaging in an act of work. In fact, yes. that's what it says when you get to Genesis two, the very beginning of Genesis two, where it's kind of rounding out that creation week, talks about all the work that God did. And so God is a worker. But then if God is a worker, when he creates humans, 
in his image. Yes. Right? We, we're somehow reflecting who God is. So that means that we then also are created to do things, not just to exist, but to, to do things. So I think seeing at the very beginning that good works are really central to who we are, not in the sense that we somehow can make ourselves whoever we want to be by what we do or something like that, but that doing the good that God has created us to do is central to what it means to be human. I think that was really helpful even for me to just put together as I was writing this. Yeah. And there were also, when I got to Genesis 2, it's interesting, there, there are actually some, some interpreters that really argue that work doesn't come into the picture until after the fall. Okay, interesting. So, so you know, I, I think a lot of, it's a minority of interpreters. Okay. A, a lot of us, I think rightly, see Adam in the garden working in Genesis 2, and then, of course, he's joined by Eve once God creates Eve. But there are actually some interpreters that argue that it's not work that they're doing mm. in the garden, it's worship. Worship, okay. and then work comes, comes into the picture only. I never heard that. Yeah, I hadn't either until i started doing some research getting ready for all this and then ran into these these interpreters but there is at least a perspective out there that views work as a post-fall reality yeah and that, and that was one of the things that i really wanted to push back against uh, getting into the canon because if you have that kind of frame that's going to of course and impact some things pretty significantly in how you interpret the rest of the canon, because those those framing chapters of Genesis one to two and Revelation twenty one to twenty two, yeah, those tend to be very significant for how you view the whole. So that that's kind of where I begin. It's talking about God as a worker. Uh, we are created in His image to do the good for which He He made us. Uh, I think another big emphasis for me in that Old Testament chapter as well is seeing that the idea of of good works that that is really central to the notion of covenant. Hmm. And and I think that that's another thing that sometimes get gets lost uh, because of how people view covenants. A lot of, uh, there's kind of this popular line that when we're thinking about biblical covenants, that there are some covenants in the Bible that are unconditional, that are purely, okay. you know, granted by God and that, that yeah. there's no expectation placed on the human party. But actually, as we've explored the nature of covenants more and nuanced things over the last several decades of scholarship, I think what we're correctly coming to understand is that all covenants are both a divine gift. Yes, yeah. A conditional element to those. Yes. And so yeah. what that means is if you're in a covenant, you should be expecting that there is some sort yes. of work that is expect that is expected by God from you. Okay, I'm going to drop in here. I, I can't help but um, I'm, forgive me for going probably ahead of chapter. But I imagine you as a New Testament scholar, that's your main emphasis. Uh, like this connects to John Barclay and Paul and the gift type of idea um, with the the kind of dual nature of what's involved with um, Charis. It it does, yeah, yeah. But interestingly, a, a lot of this scholarship. Uh, on covenants has been done independently of that. So, for example, huh. uh, Gentry and Wellam's book, Kingdom Through Covenant, they just came out with a second edition, I think, in 2018. And okay. one of the things they really emphasize, I mean, the whole the whole book is basically a biblical theology of covenants. And one of the things they really helpfully emphasize is that covenants have both conditional and unconditional elements. So the yeah, sure. things that God is unilaterally declaring in a covenant, I'm going to do this no matter what the human side does. But there are always, I think we can say in scripture, always conditional elements as well. So I think that that was re really important. Um, let me, before I get to some later parts of the Old Testament, let me just say one of the things that was really helpful for me in, in working through the project was really thinking about the greatest commandments. And, and even that even comes out in the, the titles of the chapters. So the Old Testament chapter is the greatest commandments announced, and then the New Testament chapter is the greatest commandments fulfilled. But okay. seeing, seeing the greatest commandments as being really the source of where we even get these 
these phrases or ideas of works of piety and works yes. of mercy. If, 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 you know, your listeners who are familiar with the Protestant tradition and, and just the Christian tradition in general will know that those are two terms that are pretty common, works of piety and works of mercy. Right. But really before beginning to engage in this project, I hadn't really thought about how those connected to the greatest commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes. And love mm -hmm. your neighbor as yourself. Works of piety, right? Our our love yes. expressed toward God, works of mercy, our love expressed toward other humans, right? And that those are really central to all of scripture and I think important for our salvation. So So in those in that sense, like that that action is a work. Yes. Is it, or think this this is that good work that we're called yeah. to. I often think of that as even um sometimes when I'm looking to explain the doctrine of sanctification to people, sometimes I point back to that 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 those two ideas that, that we can come to a place of loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, you know, works of piety, and our neighbors as our, ourselves. And that, that's actually a prayer that I pray for my kids regularly, that I want them to exhibit those characteristics. So, but but nevertheless, like when we're doing that. This is an action. This is a work that's accomplished. Yes. Yeah. Just, just one more thing on that conditional, yeah. conditional side. One, one of the other insights that really kind of surprised me as I was working through the project was seeing the Davidic covenant in particular in this way. So, okay. Yeah. That's one you'd think is often. Uh, totally unconditional, right? Because you think of all that happens through the historical books of the Old Testament, and you think, man, boy, God just is holding on here for this uh, covenant to David. So tell tell us what what I, I read it, but tell us more. And he is. I, I think I think there there is a significant degree to which that's true. But what's fascinating is if you look at Second Samuel seven, where you have the initial statement of the Davidic covenant, right? That actually, if you read it it does sound pretty unconditional right now there. I think there, if you read carefully, there are some conditional implications or conditional elements, but what's fascinating is as you read through, especially first and second Kings, the Davidic covenant gets referred back to a number of times. And often it's described in conditional terms. If this, hmm. then that, if you do this, then that, and so what we what we find, actually, if we're really viewing the Davidic covenant, not just in terms of Second Samuel 7 alone, but actually looking at all the various statements of that covenant throughout Scripture, particularly in the books of Kings, we find that actually there are significant expectations that are placed on the human parties. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no unconditional elements, right? I think God promises to send this Messiah, right? And he's right. going to do that regardless of what kind of mistakes we find in the kings of of judah for example however the kings of judah themselves have significant amounts of flexibility in terms of what sorts of benefits they're going to right. receive within that covenant based on how they respond both to god and how they act toward others yeah this is interesting of course i think this helps uh, bring in, of course, more of the, of the concept of human freedom with how God interacts with us and what the nature of, the, of this conditionality is. I think I'm going to have to press pause on that idea, though, and I, I really want to make sure we get to the, uh, the, the rest of your, your chapters, too. Um, I, I love these type of things, and I just want to encourage people to get this book to check it out and go through these things that Caleb's talking about. He highlights not just in the Davidic covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant. And I think it's so clear. But you also, before we get to the New Testament, Caleb, you also highlight some of these themes in the minor prophets. And I love that you are able to do that. Can you just um, maybe drop into one of those prophets and, and tell us what you picked up on there or, or maybe something from th that portion that really helped you? Yeah, well, I, I think probably the one that I I love the most is Isaiah. Yeah, and, and and I think if you look at Isaiah, particularly not not just a few passages, but if you just look at the whole of Isaiah, I think what you see is that there is a good works problem, and 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 I think it, you also see some of the issue with having sort of this. Well, I'm doing worship, not works, sort of mentality. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because from the very beginning of Isaiah. 
God declares that Israel has broken the covenant, right? And and they they have not responded to him in the way that they should. They should have this close relationship with him, but instead they don't even know him. And then he goes on to rebuke them precisely for carrying out the classic acts of worship, right? right? You've offered right. sacrifices and I hate it. <laughs> right. right. Is what is the kind of vibe that we get from God. And the reason he doesn't want their sacrifices is not because it's wrong to give God sacrifices in the abstract. It's because they're offering God these sacrifices. They're going through the motions without actually living the lives that are supposed to go along with those acts of worship that are happening in the temple. Right. Yes. And, and so they're, they're doing injustice. They're, they're, they're cheating people. They're not treating widows appropriately. And, and these are the kinds of things that they need to fix if their worship is actually going to be received as worship, or I guess you could say their ritual acts are going to be right. received as worship by God. And really that, uh, that tension is what then you depart from as you begin to work through the rest of Isaiah, right? So that's kind of Isaiah one to five. And then Isaiah six is launching you into the rest of the book. And we find that ultimately what God wants to do is redeem his people so that they can be the kind of people that actually have lives that align with the professions that they make and the ritual actions they undertake. Yeah. It's really helpful to think about like lining those things up and, and that being a part of like why the Protestant tradition would have a dual emphasis. And this is like, it's not just that they came up with this as a response to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> this is what something they found in scripture. Like this is, this is just like almost like an obvious fact. I think some people just suggest, well, that, that that's not that's just the appropriate response it's not actually a part of the action but if you look like god's saying through the prophet isaiah and isaiah 58 like i reject these i reject these inadequate symbols that don't connect to the reality of how you treat those who are in need yeah this is great okay so let's get to new testament chapter um and you start off well, let me let me make you let you have an introductory comment too about kind of like the big themes, and then if we have time, maybe I can dive into a few of the passages that you deal with. Well, I think one thing just from the start is that we see a lot of continuity between the Old and New Testaments on this issue. A lot of people tend to view the Old Testament as works heavy, and then oh, we get this new thing in the New Testament. And while there is a lot of new that we get in the New Testament. There is a lot of continuity between the two, and particularly on the importance of works in salvation. So there's a lot of grace in the Old Testament. Yeah. There are also works that are expected. There's a lot of grace in the New Testament, but there are also works that are expected. And I'll talk a little bit more about the kind of the overarching picture that you come out with on, on the other end. But I think just seeing that as a starting point is, is important. And really, we sh I mean, if we're reading the Bible for what the Bible's trying to say to us, I think this should come out pretty clearly because the first thing that you get in the New Testament is four books about Jesus, right? Yes. And Jesus is really clear in his teaching that good works are important. I mean, he has probably, I would say probably many of the strongest statements in Scripture regarding the necessity of good works are coming straight from the lips of Jesus. I mean, if you have a red letter Bible, these are in your red letters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and really, yeah. I think it's, it's primarily because of a certain reading of Paul that some of us have kind of sidelined what Jesus says or said, well, that can't be what he's really saying. Yeah. There, there must be something else going on. And so I'm going to kind of read, read Paul is giving me the true gospel. And then uh, Paul, a certain, a certain reading of Paul, right. Becomes the right. through which you interpret the gospels. Interesting. So, you know, so that no one can boast, you know, these like Ephesians two type of ideas. Like you think that's the lens that people put on often, and then, then they come to the gospels with that perspective. I think so. I think so. And I think that in order to really to really get what Jesus is saying, we just need to hear Jesus. And and I think what we'll find as well is that Paul actually is saying the same kinds of things. Yeah. We just sometimes not read Paul in the best way. 
So, yeah, I mean, passages like Luke 1 to 4, where you see Jesus coming and then he launches his ministry, right? Yeah. He launches his ministry by quoting this classic passage from Isaiah 61, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And, and then goes on to describe the good works that this spirit-filled one, the Messiah, is going to, to do. You, you get this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. You get this in the, when, when Jesus asks the question, what must I do to be saved? A couple times in his ministry, he doesn't say nothing. Right. <laughs> he actually gives an answer that involves yeah. doing things, you know? And and then I, I think also when you, you get down to Jesus' es- teachings about eschatological judgment. Right. This is where it comes out the strongest, Right. I mean, you get to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Right. The the parable of the talents is one of the ones I discuss, but also the story that Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. No, yeah. We've done the least of these. Yeah, d- depart into eternal separation from God precisely because they did not do good toward their neighbor. Yeah. And, and that's that's sobering for sure, for sure. <laughs> This is this is the uh, certainly the challenge that we have is like maybe with this approach that comes because we want to emphasize maybe, and it comes from a good place that there there is this essential ingredient that comes with knowing that it's God's work on the cross like we can't save ourselves again I said that earlier but but this is these two things go hand in hand I I think you title one of the subheadings, you know, faith that works, right? Like this, this is, th- these things are connected. And now, now some people, well, we'll get into the practical piece a little bit later. So I, I think this is really helpful, Caleb, for us to be able to see this picture. Um, what could you say about like this, this Pauline tradition? You know, we, we have in Titus that we're to be zealous, to do good works, but but how can we read Paul more faithfully? Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to the way that we understand two key terms. So, okay, one would be grace, and the other is faith. And I, I think sometimes we have read those terms through the lens of our own culture, okay, and the lens of Paul's culture and what Paul was trying to to get across. So, and here I'm drawing on the work of scholars like David De Silva and John Barclay. There's been some really great work done on the issue of patronage and particular, and just in general, the issue of gifts. In yes, this is important. This is, yeah. And this has been over the last few years, for me, one of the most helpful conceptual distinctions that, I, that I've come to, and, and it hasn't been really my own research, it's reading people who have who've done good research. But for many of us, we assume that if something is a gift or something right. gracious or graceful, that that means that there are no strings attached. Right. So th- that's one way to think about a gift. What most of us don't realize is that that way of thinking about a gift is really a pretty modern concept. And in the ancient world, and and particularly in Paul's Greco-Roman world, there was this institution called patronage that was really central to how the world worked. It was one of the building blocks of Greco-Roman society. I mean, it it, it would be equivalent to them for what the internet might be for us. It's just so central to how society works. And within the patronage system, you had a patron who was usually someone with more resources and more reputation, more power perhaps, and you would have a client who was someone with with fewer resources and perhaps fewer connections, and there was a relationship that would develop there between the patron and the client. And the patron would use their resources and their connections to benefit the, the client. And by the way, when they did that, that could be called grace or the, the yes. cars. But then interestingly, the client, instead of just receiving and doing nothing in return, the expectation was that the client would return something to, to the to the patron. Now obviously the client can't give money back necessarily and they're not going to have even the connections, but what they can give back is faith 
or loyalty, or you might say faithfulness. That yes, was yes. I could respond with. So there was this reciprocal relationship between the patron and the client. And that really informed uh, the way that people thought about these things. So, and, and we don't necessarily need to assume that just because that system existed. And by the way, that because the Greek terms that we translate as grace and faith were used in that system, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to read Paul that way. What it would mean, though, is that we need to be very careful about saying that Paul had an extremely different concept of a gift or a different concept of grace that was totally yeah. disconnected from that. And and if we if we were going to say something like that, we want to have really good evidence in Paul that Paul is thinking about grace differently. So here, here's how that kind of comes to comes to rest. Uh, again, one way to think about a gift is something is that it's something that's given with no strings attached. But mm -hmm. in Paul's world, most people would have assumed that a gift was going to have strings attached. Yes. And what John Barclay argues in, in his book, Paul and the Gift, is that what's really central for Paul with the notion of grace is not that there are no strings attached. He even says that that's not the way that Paul seems to think about gifts, but rather that they are given to people that don't deserve them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what makes grace grace for Paul is that it is given to people who are not worthy of receiving that gift. In other words, there is an imbalance between the worth of the gift and the nature of the recipient. Yes. yes. And it's different from saying that there's nothing expected in response. A lot of a lot of the time we put those two things together. We assume that they're one and the same, but actually we find that it, it's it seems like when we look at Paul's world and we also look at Paul, that those are two distinct things. And Paul does adopt one of those in his notion of grace. And he actually seems to reject the other. So yes, salvation is a gift in that it is given to people who do not deserve it. But at the same time, there is an expected response. Right. So that's really helpful. And, and I saw that, and I encourage people to go back and listen to that last five minutes that Caleb just distilled. I can't tell you how good that is because, you know, the, the, this recent scholarship and I've only looked at John Barkley. I haven't seen the David De Silva piece, who you know, a scholar that I've known of. But this is that's a really nice distillation of these really important ideas that can unlock this theme that comes through. Now, I, I imagine you're going here next, but I saw as as really delighted to see that Matthew Bates um, endorsed your book as well, who I've had on the podcast, uh, and you know his understanding of pistis or pistuo, the word for faith, faithfulness might be in some instances translated allegiance. And it and it conveys a similar idea that th this isn't just a one-time move. Instead, there's a working out, a regular kind of demonstration of our allegiance. Is that, I'm, maybe I'm ahead of you, or maybe uh, maybe this isn't where you're going. Is that what you were thinking too, with addition, like these two important terms, we have grace, but then also faith in that way? Yeah, so what I would say is I think at least as concerns initial justification. And that's, that's I yeah. weren't able to do everything in this book. So what I tried to do was really look at what what faith is as concerns initial justification, which okay. is way, not the whole picture of justification, right? Amen, there's, yeah. There's more to come. But uh, I think really for Paul, what it means to have faith is that you receive God's gift as a gift. Right. So in other right. words, in, in, in rather than trying to merit or earn God's gift and make it something that is then owed to you, rather than that, you receive it as a gift, recognizing that you could never have earned it. Mm. So that that's essentially what I, what I think it faith, faith means for Paul as concerns initial justification. So I, I think I would differ a little bit from from Matthew there because. He, he might want to see faith as, in that case, as allegiance or just across the board, right? Okay, and, yeah. Well, I think that faith can certainly, that initial faith can lead to allegiance and may eventually become allegiance, that I think initially it's simply just receiving something as a gift. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. And, and, and yeah, okay. Now, anything else you want to add on the Pauline section? Do you want to? Yeah, just, just one more thing here, and this, this is maybe a good way to just put it together. So yeah, uh, 
Barclay makes a really helpful distinction, I think, that goes along with this one that we've been talking about uh, regarding the, the difference between having this sort of no strings attached view of a gift and a, a gift that's given to unworthy recipients. Uh, Barclay says that uh, grace for Paul is unconditioned, but it's not unconditional. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So unconditioned then in the sense that there, it, it, it's not our own worth or our own state that is the reason that we're given this thing, right? So God, God gives his gift to unworthy recipients, right? And all right. of us are unworthy. Everybody's unworthy. But that's different than saying that there are no conditions after the fact, right? Yeah. So, so for Paul, it, yes, grace is unconditioned, but it's not unconditional. Mm. And, and I think that that's a really helpful way of putting it together. And really, I, th I think this may helps to make sense of so much of the new Testament, but if I can just kind of, point to one text where I think it really cashes out, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. So typically, and I'll just read the passage quickly. this is one that many of your listeners will be familiar with, but Paul says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And many of us stop right there, right? We say, okay, good, I got it, right? Yeah. That this is a gift, it's not by works. But Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, right. which God prepared, God prepared in advance for us to do. And that doesn't sound like good works are optional at that point, right? I mean, because God prepared them for us to do. So these are, these are part of the destiny that we're supposed to live into as believers. So how do you put those two things together? And if, if you have this idea that, well, there are no strings attached to God's gift, then that becomes kind of difficult. But I think if we, we view God's grace in this way that I've been describing, it makes total sense, right? Because in verses 8 and 9, Paul then is saying that, hey, this is not something that you can earn, right? You, you are an unworthy recipient of this gift. Right. At the same time, it makes total sense for him to go on to say, and this is the appropriate response and even the expected response to that gift. Right. So it's not unconditional, right? right. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful, Caleb. Um, I, I hope that that helps people think through this in uh, with a little bit more nuance with how we approach that, that kind of passage. And I know that it can be there. It can be freeing to some to think, Oh, I don't have to do anything. Like it's not. And, and the, the danger is that we think um, we're, you're kind of in and out, in and out, in and out of salvation. Like kind of like the, you know, Calvinist joke that came to me is like, you might say we're tulip, but you're the the daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. You know, like uh, that's like the Wesleyan perspective. Uh, I, I think like this nuances that idea differently and more helpfully. Um, so you also have just a little, you have a bit on revelation and judgment and how all this comes together. You wanted to say a word about that. I know we're, we probably don't have too much more time, but I really want to get to some of that. Yeah. So just one thing before we get there, kind of goes along well with it. Uh, one thing that many people forget is that Paul himself has a doctrine of final justification. Right. And so we have this initial justification, which is the point where we're initially declared righteous on the basis of faith. It's God's gift to us. This is Romans four, right? So yes, there's initial justification, but Paul also talks about a justification that happens later in the Christian life. And, and, that connects to final final judgment, I think. Yeah, sure. So Paul himself affirms that there's going to be a point where we we are judged and that our works will be a part of that. Paul actually says that that judgment is according to works. Hmm. And, and, and that's interesting because, number one, I think that helps us to, uh, one, reconcile Paul with James a little bit because— James, I think, when he s talks about justification by works right. in James 2, I think he's talking about that later point of, of justification, or at least a subsequent point 
of justification beyond that initial justification. But it's also interesting because it connects to Revelation as well, because Revelation talks about people being judged according to their works. And it's, it's a part that's really easy to screen out if, if you're trying to sort of read in this salvation is unconditional sort of way. But I, I think when we actually pay attention to what Revelation is saying at multiple points, we find that, yes, our, our works are going to be an important point of, of final judgment. That's not to say that we will come to this place where we've earned our salvation. We could ever get away from the fact that we needed God to give this gift to us. And we are our, we were unworthy sinners, right? We were right. lost in our, and dead in our trespasses. So definitely you can hang on to that reality, and we want to hang on to that reality. But at the same time saying there is a significant degree to, to which your works do factor into final judgment. This is so helpful, Caleb, because I think what this does, this leads us to a place of looking back to, you know, the, your introduction and the problems that Christianity can face in that we, um, uh, what would you call a crisis of what? Credibility. Credibility, right? Like we're, we're dealing with this, like it's not being lived out. If it wasn't, if it's the Christian's witness that's leading people to not be Christians at times. So if our works are a part of our, the expression of our faith on a regular basis, this then is in part a response to that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the beautiful thing is that Revelation finishes the canon out by showing us that actually good works not only were a part of God's original intent, they are a part of God's final intent. Mm -hmm. and we don't need to get into all the details right here. People can go read the, the final section of that chapter. But if you actually look at the, the biblical allusions that are woven into Revelation uh, 20, 21 and 22, uh, one of the things that you'll find is that good works are actually part of the way that Isaiah, who is one of John's inspirations for those chapters, the way that Isaiah views the the final intent, right, the, the new creation. And and particularly when we get to Revelation, we find that we are actually going to serve and reign with God. So activities that are not merely restricted to what a lot of us would think of as being a worship service, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 I do think that our our works of of service and and also our, our works of ruling in the new creation those those are uh worship for sure but worship i think is broader than just singing and playing instruments although those are certainly good things to do as well yeah but we will have a broader horizon for our future that involves work and that will be a good thing because we will be redeemed amen yeah i i, I have a whole section on this on my new course that's coming out on heaven about work in eternity and kind of responding to the idea that many people have. I mean, Caleb, it's just as wild to me as I've taught this material a few times now. I'm just surprised at some of the questions that come up that oftentimes people think that eternity and it with Jesus is truly a never ending worship service similar to what they experience on a Sunday morning. Um, and so, they'll, they, I mean, I've had, I had somebody say, if that's what it is, I'm not, I'm not interested. Right. And this is a fuller picture and a doctrine of works helps us understand that bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I can, I just, like yeah. to, so kind of put, put at least the biblical chapters together uh, just by reading the last couple paragraphs of, of that new Testament chapter. Sure. And I think, I think it'll help to highlight some of the, some of the tensions that uh, readers may have experienced that hopefully a, a biblical theology perspective like the one in this book helps to reconcile. So uh, the diverse New Testament documents examined above reveal a remarkably unified perspective on the role of good works and salvation. One can perhaps best appreciate this unity by undertaking a brief thought experiment. Imagine that you are a historian studying Christian origins but the only New Testament documents that have survived are the Gospels, Acts, James, and Revelation. What would you conclude about the role of good works in early Christian thinking about salvation? From the Gospels and Acts, you might conclude that early Christians thought that a cataclysmic event had occurred with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension in the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
such that followers of Jesus were empowered and expected to live Jesus-shaped lives in the present. From James, you might determine that some early Christians did not live this way and had to be reminded that saying or thinking the right things but doing the wrong ones would not end well on Judgment Day. From Revelation, you might get more of the same, along with a sense that the first Christians were motivated to live well in the present by a vision of a new creation in which all things, including human works, would be fully redeemed. But the underlying message that you would derive from all these documents would be that good works were considered necessary, such that no Jesus follower should expect to be saved without them. Such a thought experiment demonstrates the extent to which a certain reading of Paul's writings has caused many modern Christians to de-emphasize works in the New Testament's view of salvation. But as we've seen above, the works-optional interpretation of Paul is not compelling even as a reading of Paul, and it is even less compelling when we take the rest of the New Testament into account. Paul, of course, places his own accents on the incongruity of grace and the necessity of faith, but he also affirms with Jesus and the other New Testament authors that good works are necessary for salvation. From Genesis to Revelation, then, we find that Scripture depicts good works as being an essential part of God's intent, original, redemptive, and final for humans. And this is good news, for it means that God desires not only to declare us righteous, but also to make us righteous in the here and yes. now, so that our lives become a true testament to his saving power. Awesome. What a great, that's a great technique there, Caleb. To, to employ that here. And then uh, I love the the hat tip to um, imparted and imputed righteousness at the end. Yeah, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the, and the truth is like, we want to be in a situation where this, this really can happen in the life of a believer. Like this change can affect all of our life. Well, we don't have too much more time. And I think we'll have to just jump over the systematic chapter, but I want, I want to make sure to highlight just a little bit of the chat, the practical chapter in this is like, well, what, what do these works look like? And may maybe you could summarize some of that. Um, what does that look like in the life of the church now? Yeah. So we, we have a couple practical theology chapters. And, and by the way, I think this is one of the fun parts about the book is that we actually walk it into everyday life a little bit more than theological works often. Yeah. And, and so dad wrote, my, my father, Matt Friedman, wrote a, a couple uh, really helpful practical theology chapters. So the first one is, is actually doing case studies on a number of churches in which a significant percentage of the church was regularly engaged in good works. And so you get to kind of see the different ways that each of those churches has done that, the kinds of ministries they're engaging in on a, a weekly basis. And then also you get to see some of these structures and uh, emphases that have helped to support that praxis of good works. And then the the other chapter is basically about some some leadership lessons that we learn from looking at those churches and and also some others that that we surveyed as well. So I think those were really helpful, and I, I remember reading over. Uh, a draft of this book as we were wrapping it up and just thinking, wow, I really, I love actually connecting this to the ground a little bit more than even I've often done with, with my own writing. So I, I love that. Um, just a couple, couple insights from that last, that last chapter that I found really helpful. Uh, one of the leadership principles that we give is that if pastors really want to see good works practice in their church, they need to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that means taking of your own time to sacrificially do good works, works, works of piety, yes, but also works of mercy on yes. a regular basis. If you want your average congregant to be doing that, then you should probably be doing it as well. And then a, another one I thought was really helpful is this idea of let the laity lead. Mm. So yes, pastors need to be engaged, but often we get in this hole where we think, or, or churches think, that well, we we pay our pastor to do the ministry, right? Us, right, and that's not what the most effective churches are doing. The most effective churches that we were able to find are actually empowering their laity to to do these things in in various ways. But but one of those is by saying, hey, we don't have to have a staff member leading every ministry in this church, even outgoing ministries, and especially outgoing ministries. We can. We can have ministries that go to the prison. We can have ministries that go to abortion clinics, perhaps, that 
go to feed those who are hungry, to house the homeless. I mean, we can have these ministries and we can empower lay people to lead these. We don't have to have pastors doing everything. And I think those kinds of principles can be really helpful in helping us to correct this crisis of credibility that we talked about earlier, and really to be the witnesses that Christ has called us to be in the world. Yeah, that's great. Well, the, and those chapters are really helpful. And your your dad found uh, churches that have uh, a high percentage of lay people who are engaged in that type of work. So I thought that was a really helpful tool to use to try to find not just like which church is the biggest or which church has the most effective ministry uh what we where are people really engaged and how can you calculate that so um i think it's, it's really good it, it would have been great if we could have had everybody on but i'm really glad to get the biblical foundation particularly to spend a little bit more time on that but obviously you guys worked on this project together and you own it together so i'm i'm glad that it's so connected also to wesley biblical seminary that you're obviously your dad's here, Tom was a graduate, you're a graduate, um, and that we're able to offer this as a way. I, I like to think all of you are on, on behalf of uh, us at Wesley Biblical Seminary, being able to bring this to the world and really to the Protestant tradition as a whole. So thank you so much for your work on this, Caleb. Um, any, but I always ask a question, uh, that, that podcast is titled More to the Story. And I wonder, is there more to the story that Caleb Friedman is normally told? Obviously, we talked a lot about your, your study here, but uh, is there something you like to do that you don't talk a lot about oh, on man. a podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big reader. And okay. uh, yeah, I really, does that count for a scholar to say he's a big reader? Okay. Yeah. Tell me something that's not like a New Testament studies type of book. What, what yeah, do you, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, so I've actually been reading a good bit of Dostoevsky this year. Okay. Uh, both Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov. But yeah, I'm, I'm constantly reading, trying to read a lot of the, the classics or the great books. And I uh, actually found, found some of that reading to be really helpful in unexpected ways for uh, doing theology and thinking about biblical studies. But, but I try to really have a, a reading life that goes beyond what I do for you know, my, my profession as a New Testament scholar. But yeah, that, those, that's that's one of the things. I I also am an avid weightlifter. And yes, really enjoy getting in the gym, and uh, yeah, not just like a hey, I like to keep a little bit in shape, but uh, a competitive weightlifter. You've been in the past, right? In high school, in high school, yes, yes. So go ahead and brag on yourself. Tell tell us what you did. Tell us uh tell us your achievements in high school. Uh, well, I, I, I was a power lifter. So squat, bench and deadlift were the, the lifts to compete in. And that's, that's basically a one rep max of each of those lifts. And then you can also compete for the total. So there are kind of four different things that you can com compete for in terms of setting a record or winning a competition. So, yeah, I was, I was, uh, in high school when I was about 14 to 15 years old and then lifting in the 165. Uh, weight class. Uh, I, I actually was able to get all four of the records. Wow. Yeah. At the American level. And, and then when I was uh, 16 to 17 and in the 181 class, I, I wasn't able to get all four, but I was able to do the, the deadlift record and the total record. So, so yeah, th those were, those were kind of my, my best lifts at, at that meet. So that, I think that was some, something like a, uh, 545 or 565 squat, oh. a 341 bench. I think these were all in kilos. So they're, a little, they're a little weird. And then like a 602 pound deadlift. And, and wow. The total, of the total. So, yeah. So, but that was. Okay. Uh, here's was, the real uh, question then. Uh, there are five. More far away. I uh, gotcha. <laughs> there are five Freedom and Boys in your family. Who wins the arm wrestling contest? Oh man, you know I don't I don't really know, but I I would like to thank me just because uh, I actually enjoy watching arm wrestling, so I might have a little technical. Oh, there it is. Yeah, but we we don't actually arm wrestle much, but uh, but I, I'd love to think that I'd be able to pull it out if we if we did it. But I'm but gonna I'm host it on my podcast, the Freedom in Contest, the Freedom in Arm Wrestling Contest. <laughs> yes, yes, we we could we could quote scripture to each other or something while we're doing it to to make it theological enough. That's right. That sounds good. Well, Caleb, thanks so much for your work on this project. I know you have other things uh, that you're cooking that are cooking up for on your on your writing side. And thankful for work you're doing at Ohio Christian, a school in the same tradition. Thankful for Ron Smith and various people who've been there through the years. And also, thanks for taking time with me today. It means a lot to me.
Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing people engage with, with this work and, and hopefully uh, seeing it bear fruit for the church. That's really why we do it.